If you could open your Bibles to chat, uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 18. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I'll have the, I'll have the text up for, just for this Sunday alone. I'll have the text up for you. And hopefully the person can follow along, help me. As I go through the text, you can uh, flip accordingly. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. There was a man having been sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, a light enlightens everyone. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to them... He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as the of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and, and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me, has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have, we have all received, and, and grace upon grace. For the, the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. About a week ago, my son's kindergarten class had a Christmas party, and I was assign the role of reading a couple of Christmas stories to them. I chose two different books that focused on the birth of Christ. And, and one of the first lessons on, on Jesus' birth, I really wanted to, to get to these, these minds, these, to, these, to this class of five and six-year-olds, was the, the, this, the idea and the truth that Jesus' life did not begin at His birth. It's not hard to make that mistake about the birth of Christ. For every human being that has ever been born, not named Jesus Christ, our birth does mark the very beginning of our existence. So I really wanted to make sure that, that they understood that, that, that Jesus' existence it didn't begin in a, in a manger in a town of Bethlehem. And so, and we need to know this from a, from a kindergarten class to a pagan culture around us who, who may have those kind of ideas. Even to many churchgoers, we, we can forget that, that Jesus' life and existence didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. We need to make sure that, that we need to know who Jesus was before He became a baby in order to grasp the full magnitude of the incarnation. And that's the, the Apostle John's concern at, at the beginning of the uh, of this Gospel as well. The, the Gospel of John is one of four Gospels that record the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew and Luke begin their Gospels with the particular circumstances and, and details of Jesus' birth. They describe the historical context of Jesus' birth. How did Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem? How did, how did the Magi find Jesus? Who was... King Herod, and what was his problem, and why did Joseph and Mary have to run away after to Egypt after the birth of Christ? Matthew begins his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, starting back from Abraham, continuing through the line of David, as, as uh, Brother Alex read so well. Praise God, you got through all those names. It was it's a great job. 
Uh, Luke adds details about the birth of John the Baptist. John, however, begins his gospel making sure we don't make the same mistake that, that a class of five and six year olds can make. Yes, he, Jesus was born in a manger in, in, in a little town, but his, his existence didn't begin at conception. Yes, Jesus' birth was like ours in every way. Uh, he was a, a real human being. He possessed a real uh, DNA from his mother. He, he came came out crying and, and depending on his mother's milk like, like all of us did uh, when we were born. But his birth was, was, was also unlike any other person's. And John, the, the, the Apostle John, he, he understands that if we fail to grasp clearly who Jesus was before his birth, our posture toward him can, will never rise above mere human sentimentality and temporary emotions. When we think about the birth of Christ, God wants more than mushy feelings. He wants us to bow down and worship Him. John's purpose for the way he begins the Gospel and for the rest of the Gospel for that matter is contained in John 20, verse 31, where John says, I've written these things to you about Jesus' life in these pages, quote, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in His name. So the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 that we're going to consider, they are a, a prologue. They are an introduction to the rest of the Gospel. It is a summary of how the Son of God in eternity past was sent into the world to become the Jesus of history so that the glory of the grace of God might be uniquely and perfectly disclosed. And the rest of the book is nothing other than an expansion of that theme. And with that said, I have three main hooks to hang your thoughts on this morning. Three hooks to hang your thoughts on this morning. Number one, the deity of the Word, the witness of the Word, and the glory of the Word. The deity of the Word, the witness of the Word, and the glory of the Word. And let's consider, let's focus our minds on on, on our first point of the morning, the deity of the Word uh, found in the first five, five verses of chapter 1. See, in the delivery rooms of where my two children were born, there was a, there was a myriad of, of different emotions and, and feelings permeating the, the, the operating room. You could sense the intensity and, and focus of the doctor and, and nurses working to deliver our baby. There was the pain, there was the anguish of my wife as she, as she pushed with all our might. I could feel my own emotional kaleidoscope of fear and anxiety and empathy for what my wife was going through. But then when the baby was delivered, delivered, finally there was a, a collective joy and, and a sigh of relief. There was rejoicing. And yet, in the midst of these different feelings and emotions, no one worshipped our baby. Like no one there began singing songs of praise to any one of my, my two children. Jesus' birth was similar to the birth of my children. His mother suffered during the delivery process. An umbilical, umbilical cord was cut. Joseph fretted like any first-time father. But here's what happened just after Jesus' birth that probably didn't happen at your children's. In Matthew 2.11, this is what the Magi did after seeing baby Jesus for the first time. Matthew says this, And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and listen to this, and they fell down to the ground and worshipped him. They fell to the ground and worshipped a baby. In Luke chapter 2, furthermore, Luke records that when Jesus was born, angels appeared before shepherds announcing the birth of Christ. And they began praising God and saying over and over, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Why did magi from distant lands traveling weeks and weeks to, to get to Bethlehem, why did angels from heaven gather to worship a baby? John begins to tell us why in verses 1-5. through five. 
And he starts from the beginning of time in verse 1. He begins his gospel with the words, in the beginning. See, any reader of the Old Testament would, would immediately be reminded of the opening verse of the entire Bible in Genesis. In the context of both Genesis and here in, in John, the beginning is the absolute beginning. It is the beginning of the universe, the beginning of all things created. John's first uh, hearers hearing the beginning of this, this opening statement here in, in verse 1, if you could if you could switch that so everybody could see. Thank you. In verse 1, after when, if they, when, they, when they were hearing this, the phrase, in the beginning, uh, they would, instead of hearing the phrase, in the beginning, God, like Genesis 1-1 says, they heard, in the beginning was the Word. John, here in verse 1, is attributing what belongs to God alone to the Word. And that is this, God's eternal nature. He says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Was. That verb in that first clause is the third person form of the verb to be. It's in the imperfect tense. In the beginning, the Word continually was. The, the Word was continually being. The Word was neither a completed state or, or coming into being. In the beginning was the Word. In other, in other words, the, the Word existed for eternity before creation, just like God was in Genesis 1-1. So in this context, the Word's existence is placed outside the limits of time and place neither of which existed in the beginning. Then John continues. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word. It's logos in the Greek. The term, the, uh, the Word or logos, it resonated widely in the Jewish understanding and in the Gentile mind as well, albeit with a different meaning and connotation. In light of how frequently John quotes or alludes to the Old Testament in his gospel to understand this 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 the, the, this word the word or logos as a name for Jesus. We have to begin in the Old Testament. That's where he gets this meaning behind the, the word the word. In the Old Testament, you, you see the word or devar in the Hebrew used over and over again. It, it's used in connection, in particular, with God's powerful activity in creation. If you remember Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, over and over it says, then God said. Then God said. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, divide the, the waters, and the, the waters were divided. He said, let creatures arise from the land, and there was there were creatures. God's Word affected creation. You see God's, uh, that word, word, in, in, in Revelation. We see God's powerful action in Revelation. God tells Moses in Exodus 7, 2, You shall speak all that I command you. That'll be my word, Moses. Aaron, what I say to you, you say to Pharaoh to reveal who I am. The, the word, the word, is used in association with God's mighty work and deliverance. Psalm 107, 19 and 20 says, Then they cried out to Yahweh in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them. Isaiah 55, 11 kind of wraps it all up and he says this about God's word. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent. To, to put it simply, God's Word in the Old Testament is His powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. It conveys the notion of self-expression. In a real way, when you speak, you're revealing who you are. To, to get to know me, you have to have conversations with me. And after a while, you'll get to know who I am. And in the same way with God, when, when God speaks, He reveals His nature and His character. But it also, His Word also brings whatever He says to pass. That's where the similarity with our words stop. What I say hardly ever comes to pass. When I say, Joel, Paul, stop fighting, it doesn't work. 
But when God reveals Himself through His Word, His Word acts as a dynamic force of His will. And so in John 1.1, 1, 1, the evangelist applies the word of the Old Testament that you see over and over as God reveals himself, as God affects whatever he says to, to come to pass. He, he takes that, 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 that word we see in the Old Testament and he gives it as a title to, to God's ultimate self-disclosure. He takes that word from the Old Testament and he gives it to his son as the mightiest accomplisher of God's plan. And in Greek philosophy, the, the logos, it was a, a rational principle by which everything existed. And so in God's providential timing, although John draws on the Old Testament to inform his understanding of that word logos, Gentiles' hearers would incidentally speaking be re-educated about the Word, not being this impersonal force uh, controlling everything, but a, a, a personal being in control of everything. Because this Word, this divine self-expression existed in the beginning, you might suppose that this Word was with God or, or nothing less than God Himself. John insists the Word was both. Good verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The conjunction here, with, is pros in the Greek. It indicates accompaniment or place, but it also has the idea of disposition or, and, and orientation. It, it carries the nuance of being towards someone to express not simply coexistence, but active relationship. If like, you meet my wife for the first time, I might say, She's with me. She's with me. And I'm saying more that she's standing next to me. I'm saying she's my beloved. She, she's my, she's my bride. She's the one I love. She's my wife. And that's the idea here. That the Word was with God. In this, in this Trinitarian relationship of love and rejoicing. Oftentimes in, in the Gospel, John will, will emphasize Jesus' intimacy with the Father. John 3.2 says, This man came to Jesus by night and said to Him, Rabbi, we know that You have come from God as a teacher, for no one has, can do these signs that You do unless God is with Him. Jesus said in John 8.29, And He who sent Me is with Me. Not just He's, he's kind, of, kind of together with Me, no, the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father like no other relationship in the universe. The Apostle John continues in verse 1, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why was the Word at the beginning of creation? Eternally being. Why was the Word with God in the beginning? John says, because the Word was God. doesn't get much clearer than that in this statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Unless you're a Jehovah Witness who, who has a building next door. And sometimes we have guests and they say, hey, we, we, we went, last Sunday we, we, we tried to visit your church and we, we, we accidentally went next door. And they realize there's something fishy here. Now, the, the Jehovah Witnesses, will, they, will, they will make the argument that this isn't saying that Jesus is God because there's, there's no definite article in the Greek. So in the Greek, it says in that third clause, the word was a God. And so that, that means uh, that John is saying that Jesus was God-like. He had qualities of God. He was, he was divine like, a, like an angel. But the evidence is, is overwhelming to... to, to to point otherwise, and let me give you a, 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 a few reasons why this is clearly a saying that the Word, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was God Himself. First of all, if you look at verse 6, there was a man having been sent from God, clearly referring to God the Father. There you don't have an article. Verse 12, but He gave the right to become children of God. There's no article there. Verse 13, God, no article. Verse 18, no article. 
all over the gospel, when, when it's clearly referring to God the Father, there's no article. It's just God without an article. So you don't need, you don't need an article to say that, that God is God. But why is John doing that? Well, in the Greek here, in, in verse one, that third clause, it, it reads, uh, uh, the word, the, uh, I'm sorry, it reads, a God was the word. It's backward. A God was the word. The word is the subject, even though it's kind of after the verb. And the predicate nominative is God. A predicate nominative is something that renames the subject. So it's saying the word, the subject, was God backwards. Okay? Now, in the New Testament, 90% of the time, when the predicate nominative follows the verb and the subject is first, the predicate nominative that follows the verb, 90% of the time it has a definite article. When it's switched, like it is here, when the, when the subject is, follows the verb and the first word is the predicate nominative, 90% of the time it doesn't have an article. And so John does not have an article because that's just how Greek, Greek New Testament works. It's pretty simple. Even if he wasn't making a point, that's how he would write it. But he is making a point. Because if he, he included the article, it wouldn't, it would be very confusing. Because in verse one, the second clause, it says, and the word with, the word was with the God. The, the article is there. So if he included the article in the third clause, it would, it would read this way, and the word was, the word was with the God, and the word was the God. So how can he be with the God and the God at the same time? So in order for John to give you this Trinitarian definition of God, he distinguishes the two gods here just a little bit. One article in the second clause without the article in the third. Now if your Jehovah Witness neighbor insists on an article, you can take him to John twenty twenty eight when Thomas says to the Lord Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God, there you have an article. It literally reads, the God my, right? My, the God, translated my God because it would sound really weird if it read my, the God. So John intends to, that the whole of this gospel be read in light of verse 1. John's intention here is that the, the works and words of Jesus are the works and words of God. That is, that is what, what is, he is trying to communicate. This is why you should believe in Jesus by the time you're done reading through the Gospel of John. In verse 2, he, he, he kind of reiterates what he said in verse 1, and he, and he prepares the way for verse 3. Verse 3 says, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. John, having declared that the Word is God in verse 1, is now uh, proclaiming God's the Word's divinity from His works, from His creation. We, we go from the relationship between the Word and the Father in verse, in verse, in verse 1 and verse 2, and we move to the relationship between the Word and creation in verses 3 through 5. Why does John assign or attribute the quality of creatorhood or creatorship to the Word in verses 3 through 5? Why does he do it so early? Why begin the Gospel this way? Well, well, to answer that question, you have to also ask the question, why does the first chapter of the first book of, of the Bible, of Genesis, why does Genesis begin with that statement? Why does it record God created the heavens and the earth? And besides the obvious fact that Genesis records the beginning of history, Genesis 1, it introduces the very thesis of Scripture. That God is supreme. That God is the Creator. That there's nobody like Him. He is sovereign. He is King. It's this opening statement. Can anybody create the world in six days? Then you better worship this King. You better worship this Creator. That's Moses' intention in Genesis chapter 1. And John is making the same point here in these first verses. That Jesus is the Creator. That He is supreme. That He is sovereign. 
and you better worship him. You better bow down. Verse 3, it says everything owes its existence to the word. Verse 3 is stated positively, it's stated negatively, the word is the creator. But notice, not in the, not in the same way as the father. Yes, the word and the father possess the same power and sovereignty, but they have different roles in creation. Here in verse 3, uh, John is very careful to say all things came into being through him. Through him, not by him. So the Father is the source of creation and, and the Son is the, is the personal agent of creation. He is the, the instrument of creation who created everything. First, First Corinthians 8.6 says it in the same way. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him and one Lord, one Yahweh, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. So the Father is the source of creation and the Word is the personal agent or the instrument of creation. The second uh, the second expression in verse 3, stated negatively, is, is very emphatic. Verse 3 says, all things came into being through him. And, and then John says, and apart from him, nothing came into, the, into being that, that has come into being. John here is emphasizing, without, uh, without him, there was not even, not even one thing, not even one thing that was made. So there's the Word on one side and everything else on the other side that has been created. There's the Creator and then there's, there, there's the created. There's the eternal existent One who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, and then there's all the creation. Do you see how John, he's, he's making these two big categories and he's saying Jesus is not in the category of creation. He is not a created being. He is... The second person of the Trinity, he is God. And so in verse 4 now, we, we move on from creation in general in verse 3. And we move on in verse 4 to the creation of life. The most significant element in creation. Verse 4 says, in him was life. In him was life. John is saying the word possesses all of life within himself. Uh, all sorts of life. Life in the broadest sense. All that lives in the world. All that lives in the world receive their life from the Word. The Word gives physical life. The Word gives eternal life. And the Word sustains all of physical and spiritual life. And then in verse 4, John equates life with light. In Him was light, and the life was the light of men. The, the, the life of the Word, the self-existent life of Christ, makes a, a universal impact like the light of the sun. The life of the whole world, as we know, is sustained by the light of the sun. And in a greater way, verse 4 is saying, the life of the Word gives and sustains life, physical life, spiritual life to everyone in the world. Then in verse 5, the, ch the tense changes from past to present. John says, and the light shines in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. The Word is the light. The Word is the perfect light of holiness and truth. He is the, he is the light of love and, and grace, continually burning and shining. And then he says in verse 5, and the darkness did not overtake it. The, the darkness could not defeat the light. It, it could not dominate the light. It could not overcome the light. And yet, there was a time in history when it appeared that the darkness did win. There was a time in history where the, the darkness, it, it appeared that it had overcome the light for three days. For three days, the prince of darkness and all of the, the legions of evil thought they had overtaken the light while Jesus lay dead in a tomb. And little did the darkness know that those three days were the final nail in the coffin, ending sin and death forever. On the third day, this is how Mark 16 verse 2 describes the day Jesus' resurrection defeated the darkness for good. Mark says, 
And very early on the first day of the week, they came to this tomb when the sun had risen. It was the first day of creation in Genesis 1 when the the light overtook the darkness. And it was the first day of the week when the light of Jesus' resurrection overtook the darkness once and for all. Jesus wants you to come out of the darkness. Jesus wants you to come to the light. If you're in the darkness, He he wants you to trust in the light. He, He wants you to follow the light. And this leads us to point number two. We go from the deity of the Word to the witness of the Word in verses 6 through 13. The witness of the word. The witness of the word. See, when you live in spiritual darkness, sometimes you can be confused. You can be deceived into thinking that, that you, you, you know the light of life. We, we think we can find life in a career. We think we can find the light in a false religion. We think we can find life within ourselves. We, 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 we mistakenly think that, that we are the light. I am the light of my own life, Pete Preacher. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything from Jesus. See, the, the life and light that you're talking about, that's within me. My strength and my innate goodness, my talent, and my, my, my intellect and ingenuity. And John's point in verses 6 through 8, he says that even the best of men, even the best of men cannot replace the light of the, of the Word. The very best that the best of men can, can do is only bear witness about the light. And he uses the example of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, was God's greatest prophet. John the Baptist was prophesied in Isaiah and in Malachi. He was, uh, he, there was an angel who prophesied his birth to his parents. And then the angel gave John the Baptist, Baptist parents his name. And this was a great man. He was godly. He had a large ministry, a large following. He was pure and holy. Even today, there's a, there's a, a religion, a, a group of people from Iraq, the Mandaeans, the Mandaeans, hold up John the Baptist as their preeminent um, preeminent prophet. And they were, they're from Iraq. They, because of persecution, they're, they're all over in America, in Boston and, and Michigan and, and, and Texas. Uh, John the Baptist was a, was a great man. People even confused John the Baptist with being Jesus Christ. They would go up to John the Baptist, are you Jesus? Are you Jesus? Are you the Messiah? Are you the light? And look at verse 19, verse 19, chapter 1. And this is the witness of John when the Jews sent him to priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who you are. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I, I am not Jesus. I am not the light. Because he was such a great man. He was, he was such a, in, in the eyes of God, he was, he was huge. And John says, and the Apostle John's point in verses 6 through 8 is, John the Baptist, he was, he was a great man. In John chapter 5, he's called the Lamb. But he wasn't, he wasn't the light. Right? Uh, verse 6 is compared to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And verse 6, there was a man. Verse 6. The Word was God, and there was a man sent from God. He was sent. All things came into being through the Word, verse 3. But John the Baptist, verse 7, came as a witness. Who is the Word? Verse 4, in him was light, and the life was the light of men. But who was John? Verse 7, he came to bear witness about the light, so that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light. But he came to bear witness about the light. He was He was a witness. He was just a witness. Don't don't put your faith in little lights and in lamps. Don't put your faith in, in the blessings of God. Don't put your faith in anything created. Don't put your faith in your family or your marriage. Those are blessings. Those are good things. But but don't trust that. That's not the light. Don't put your faith and your trust in in, in your career and and your job and and your health. Those are blessings, don't get me wrong, but that's not the light. Don't put your faith and trust in godly teachers and in in John Piper or or Steve Lawson or John MacArthur or some prominent preacher you follow. They're, They're great, they're blessings, but they're not the light. 
And even if God blesses you and uses you in the church as, as faithful and godly as you are, as much as a, a following that you have, you and I, we're not the light. We came to bear witness about the light. Others may claim to be God. There, there are competitors for your life allegiance. There are godly men and women that you can kind of worship and idolize. But look at verse 9. There was the true light. There's the true light. Jesus is the ultimate light. He is the genuine light. He, he, it says in verse 9, he, he came into the world and He enlightens everyone. He's the objective revelation of God for all. He's the, the true light for all, but not everybody receives the light. Not, not all are saved by His light. Even though He created the world, verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. The creature did not know their Creator. Verse 11, He came to what was His own. He came to Israel. He came to to, to his own Jewish people. And those who were his own, they, they did not receive him. Even his own people didn't know him. It would be like if I lived in a small town and I went off to war to fight for my country, to fight for my freedoms and values, and I, and I come back to the small town and I say, hey, I'm back. Everybody says, who are you? Who, who are you? I'm George, remember? I, I grew up here. I, I used to come to the supermarket ever since I was a boy. Do you remember me? I was away at a war. I, I, I fought for you guys. Do you remember? And everybody just, who are you? Who are you? I said, forget them, forget them. I'm going home to my family. I'm going home to my kids and my wife and my parents. And I go to the door and I open the door. Hey, I'm home! And they look at me. Who are you? Who, who, who is this guy? Call the police. Arrest him. He's a stranger. This was the experience of the Lord Jesus. He didn't come. He wasn't born in Egypt. He didn't minister in Babylon. He didn't go to Assyria. He ministered in Israel, in Jerusalem. And they said, who are you? Lock this guy up. Nail this guy to a cross. The world, they don't receive their their Creator. They don't follow the light because they think their good works and moral efforts will get them into heaven. The Jews didn't accept their Messiah because they thought being a descendant of Abraham will suffice. They, they thought well, we're the children of God because of our DNA, because of our bloodline. The Apostle John gives the reason in verses 12 and 13 why so, why so few people receive the Word. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, the, Jesus won't accept you because of your moral efforts and your religious accomplishments. You, to receive him, you have to believe in his name. But, but even before you can believe in the name of Christ, John says here, you must be born again. You must be born again. God is the one who must give you spiritual life. Look at verse 13. He's not talking about a physical birth in verse 13. He's talking about a, a new birth, a spiritual rebirth, a, a new heart, a new attitude, a new ambitions. New feelings, the new way of thinking. That's the type of birth that he's talking about. And he says, that, that, this spiritual birth, it's, it's not of blood. It's not your bloodline. It's not because you're a Jew. It's not because you're a descendant of Abraham. You can't get a spiritual rebirth that way. It's not the result of the will of the flesh or the, the will of man. You, by trying as hard as you can, working to, 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 to be good, to do enough. No, no, no. You, you can't, you can't be, you can't be born again that way. Spiritual birth, verse 13, it, it comes from God. It is of God, verse 13. It is of God. God is the one who must give you spiritual life. 
You must appeal to Him. To Him you must ask for mercy. To Him you must beg for eternal life. So much of the church thinks so you can choose Him. Just you just say a prayer. You just walk down the aisle, and, and He'll just like a servant. He'll just He'll just respond to whatever whatever you want, whatever you whatever you say. He'll He'll respond. No, no, you have to beg Him. You have to plead with Him. You have to. Ask Him for mercy. Verse 13 says that in order to be forgiven, you must, you must come to God and beg Him for a new life. To be a child of God, God must be the one to give you a new life. Only by His sovereign grace, through Jesus' name, verse 12, does God give anybody the right to become a child of God. So John is saying, Christ is the mediator of creation and He is the mediator mediator of salvation. He does the same works as the Father, but not in the same way. And that means He gets all the glory. And this leads us to point number three, the glory of the Word. Look at point number one. What was point number one, everybody? The deity of the Word. Point number two, the witness of the Word. And point number three, the glory of the Word, verses 14 through 18. Verses 14 through 18 parallels verses 1 through 5. In verses 1 through 5, John described how the Word was responsible for the beginning of creation. And now in verses 14 through 18, the Word incarnate, the Word who became flesh, He is responsible for a new creation, a new beginning. The Gospel of Matthew begins in the same way. It says, uh, uh, gives the uh, Matthew chapter 1. This is how Matthew begins uh, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The Greek behind genealogy is Genesis. Genesis. Matthew is saying, Jesus' birth, it's a new beginning. A new beginning, a, a new creation here. And John is making the same point. For the first time since verse 1, the mention of the Word reappears. So Jesus is referred to as the Word in verse 1. And then you don't see that, that, that terminology. You don't see logos in verses 2, 3, 4, all the way to verse 13. And suddenly, it reappears. That, that, that word logos, that, that term, the Word, it, it reappears. The Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, verse 1, now in verse 14, goes one step further, and it says, the Word became flesh. God became a little baby. God became a little baby. For a Jew in the first century, verse 14 would be the most shocking words that they've ever heard in their life. God became a baby? Are you insane? You see, when, when God became a baby, it was the greatest miracle of God. The, the, the incarnation of Christ in that manger is, is simply unimaginable. There is not a greater, more sublime, more glorious work than when Jesus was born. The Incarnation has been called the miracle of miracles. One theologian called the Incarnation the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power, and glory. Hey, Genesis 1 was awesome. Creation was awesome. But when God became a baby, creation was nothing. And what's so remarkable about the Word taking on a human nature is the utter contrast of, of divine attributes and human attributes coming together in one person with no mixture, with no confusion of two natures. In a manger, in the little town of Bethlehem, the Creator now identifies with the baby. you imagine having a conversation with somebody? They're saying, uh, and this is right after Jesus was born, and you're kind of, you know what happened, and 
and you're talking about the Creator, and you're saying, do you want to meet the Creator of the universe? You know Genesis 1, do you want to meet the Creator? Come here, let me show you. And He takes you into a manger and shows you a baby. There He is. And He's just crying. There He is, the Creator. In the baby Jesus, we see omnipotence and weakness. In the baby, in the manger, we see a a baby full of omniscience and total ignorance. Infinity and finitude. In those first years, as Jesus drank from his mother's breast, he was at the same time providing his mother with milk. Theologian Stephen Sharnock said, What a wonder that two natures infinitely distant could be more intimately intimately united than anything in the world. That a God upon a throne should be an infant in a cradle. That the thundering Creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. So the Incarnation astonishes men upon earth and angels in heaven. Verse 14 is shocking. It's unimaginable. It's glorious. Verses 14 through 18 has Exodus 33 and 34 in the background. If we remember in Exodus 33 and 34, there was, there was the Shekinah glory of God dwelling in a tabernacle among Israel, a, a little tent, a makeshift tent. In the, and the tabernacle, it pointed forward when God would dwell among us in the flesh. And that's what John says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here that, that Greek word is literally to dwell in a tent, to tabernacle. Here He is, Jesus, tabernacling with us. In Exodus 33, Moses would meet God in a, in a tent to speak with Him. And it was in this tent, in this, in this tabernacle, where, where Moses, he asked to see the glory of God. And remember what God said to Moses, you, Moses, you're a sinner, there's no way you could see my full glory. He said it this way to Moses, cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. But Moses, I'll, I'll show you my backside. I'll, I'll let you see a, a smidgen of my glory, but not my full glory. If you saw my full glory, you would die. You would be decimated. You would be, dis, uh, you would be blast out of the waters. So thousands of years later, in the person of Christ, from the manger to the cross, And from the cross to the resurrection, for the first time in history, sinners by faith can now see the very fullness of God's glory. Today, if you repent from your sins and receive Christ by faith, you can, you can direct, you can direct, you can directly gaze into the face of God's glory. Second Corinthians 4, 6 said, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we go to church on Christmas Sunday in order to behold His glory. Amen? See, the best gift you can get on Christmas morning isn't a toaster oven, friends. The best gift on Christmas morning is to receive a spiritual vision of the glory of the Incarnation. Merry Christmas. Do you see His glory? Do you see His glory this morning, brothers and sisters? Do you behold the glory of a, of a baby in a manger? Do you see the glory of a suffering servant feeding the multitudes with bread? Do you see the glory of, a, of, of the God-man healing paralytics, giving sight to blind men, giving hearing to deaf men? Do you see the glory the Lord forgiving prostitutes. Does anybody here see the glory of Christ bleeding on the cross, drinking the Father's cup of wrath that our sins deserve? Does anybody here see the glorious blaze of the resurrection? John says, 
in verse 14, this glory that they beheld, that all those who by faith come to him, this glory is of the only begotten from the Father. That word, only begotten, is the one of a kind. There's, there's nobody like Jesus. Nobody like Jesus. He's a one of a kind kind of person. He's a one of a kind kind of God. He's a one of a kind kind of man, a God man. And, and then John says, he is full of grace and truth. The phrase comes specifically from Exodus 34 when, when God set Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covered him with his hand until Yahweh passed by. And when Yahweh passed by, God called out and he, and he revealed his nature. God would list attribute after attribute. And one of the attributes God declared was the phrase, if you remember, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. And this phrase, full of grace and truth, is John's New Testament version of that phrase in Exodus 34. See, see Moses, when he looked at the fullness of God's, the abounding of God's loving kindness and truth, Moses was looking through a people. He was like, that's pretty awesome. Is that you, God? That's pretty cool. John is saying in these verses that now we get the church of Jesus Christ gets to open the door. We get to look outside and see the entire night sky filled with every star of God's grace and truth burning bright with the glory of Christ. Verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. In the first century, you might have thought that John's ministry was greater than Christ's ministry because it came first. That was kind of a natural assumption in that, in that time to assume John's ministry started first. And he was saying kind of the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. And then Jesus comes after him and he also says, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then... Natural mistake would be, is Jesus copying you, John? Is Are you greater than Jesus? And John says, no, 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 no. That ministry, it started in eternity. Those words, repent for the kingdom of heaven in hand, it comes from eternity, from Jesus. Jesus comes from eternity. He's, he's better than me. Moses was pretty good. John the Baptist was pretty good. But Jesus, Jesus is the God-man. And this fullness of grace and truth that we get to behold, brothers and sisters, it's described in verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17 go together. For of His fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Why did the Word need to become flesh? Why did the Word need to become flesh? Answer, in order to save us from our sins. Because somebody who is merely God cannot die for your sins. If this person is just God, that God cannot die for your sins. Why not? Because God cannot die. And a human being, yes, a human being can die for you. But because a human being, a mere human being, because they don't have a divine nature... They cannot have victory over death. A mere human being cannot have victory over sin. A mere human being cannot rise from the dead. And so the only hope we have for somebody dying for our sin is we need somebody who is God and man in one person. John Calvin explained it this way, Finally, given that God alone cannot know death and that man by himself cannot overcome death, he united deity with humanity so as to subject the weakness of the one to the pain of death and by the might of the other to combat death until victory was won. In other words, to say it again, because God cannot die, the Father could never die for our sins by himself. Only a real human being can die a real death our, our sins deserve. But, but a mere human being alone cannot rise from the dead. You also need a, the, the indestructible life of God Himself to overcome and achieve victory over sin and death. Who could possibly do this for us? John says, this is the fullness 
We have received grace upon grace. Theologian Robert Lethem said, Your salvation depends on the fact that one of the Trinity cried as a human baby. Verse 16, grace upon grace. Grace uh, literally in exchange for grace. A grace for grace. Uh, in verses 16 and 17, uh, the grace of the law that Moses was given is compared to the grace of the incarnation. Yes, the law was, was grace, but the Word who became flesh, who lived a life we couldn't live perfectly, that, that Word who died upon the cross and rose again from the dead is the God-man. He is the fullness of God's grace. The grace of the cross instead of the grace of stone tablets. The grace of Jesus instead of the grace of, of Moses. Now, for 16 verses, the Apostle John has not connected the Word and Jesus' name. He's not identified explicitly who is the Word. We got close. Verse 14, he said the Word became flesh. He said this Word was full of grace and truth, but finally in verse 17, you get an explicit identification. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. He is the one full of grace and truth. He is the one where we receive the fullness of all that God is. How do you put into detail what it means when we say that Christ is full of grace and truth? How do you, how do you put that and personalize that? For those of you know, who know Christ here this morning, Think of every blessing that you've received from Him. Think of every prayer, answered prayer. Think of, think of every sin that God has forgiven you of. Consider every measure of peace and suffering. Remind yourself of every infusion of joy during trial. Think about every praise song you, you've ever sung with your church family. Remember all the times that you, you heard the Word of God preached or, or when you were reading it and there was this divine life that just went into your soul. Count every provision of goodness you've experienced from Him. Every undeserved relationship. Think about every, every friendship, every marriage here, every child. I know some of you. You're, you're, the only reason you're married is because of God's grace alone. That's the only reason. I'm, I'm not just thinking about Austin here. I'm thinking of myself. At my, my age, I'm married to a woman I love who loves me. At my age, two beautiful children in light of the life that I lived apart from Christ, that kind of life, that kind of sin I committed, oh, this grace and truth, fullness, on fullness, unimaginable. Count every blessing. Count every blessing. All that and more because of the grace and truth of the Word who became flesh. Charles Spurgeon, he tried to put into words from his own personal experience grace and truth that he experienced from Christ. And I think his description of the grace and truth of Christ describes our experience in varying degrees. He said this, I bear witness that never servant had such a master as I have. Never brother had such a kinsman as he has been to me. Never spouse had, had such a husband as Christ has been to my soul. Never sinner a better savior. Never soldier a better captain. Never mourner a better comforter than Christ has been to my spirit. I need none beside him. In life he is my life. And in death, he shall be the death of death. In poverty is our riches. In sickness, he makes our bed. 
In darkness, he is our star. And in brightness, he is our sun. He is the manna of the camp in the wilderness. And he shall be the new corn of the host when his people come back to Canaan. He is the rock that follows us today. He is the rock on which we shall rest and within which we shall dwell forever. Behold this Christmas morning, church, the deity of the word, the witness of the word. Behold this Christmas morning, church, the glory of the word. And like wise men and wise women from afar, humble yourselves and bow down and worship at the foot of the manger, the one who came from eternity. Let's pray.